How are you? Nice to be here with everybody. Um, so I'll just go ahead. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, I'm going to try to speak up. If you can't hear in the back, raise your hand. Uh, okay, so imagine yourself standing in the aftermath of nuclear war. Somewhere in a field outside Vicksburg or maybe downtown Atlanta or Chicago, annihilation is all around you. The skies are black, fires burn, you see no one around. Strangely though, in the midst of the utter de devastation, you feel good, really good. As good as you've ever felt in your life. You are partly sad, of course, and realize the world as you know it has ended. Just maybe you'll hear the sound of the trumpet and the true end will occur at any moment. But until then, you look around, smile, and enjoy the best feeling you've had in your life. <laughs> As you walk along, you stumble across a paper sack on the ground. It looks like someone must have dropped it while, you, while fleeing nuclear fallout. You take a look in the bag. It's full of books, six of them to be exact. You notice the books are novels. You were hoping for a Bible or maybe at least a prayer book. The novels are by a guy named Walker Percy. From his picture on the back cover, you see he's an amiable, amiable looking 60 something white dude wearing khakis and a button down shirt. You start reading one of the novels, The Movie Goer. You can tell from the publication dates that it was his first book. So that seems like a good place to start. Pretty soon you're even more disoriented than before and kind of weirded out, but you keep going because, well, there's not much else to do in nuclear winter. <laughs> Little do you know that these books will tell you a thing or two about your current situation. Namely, they will tell you why it took Armageddon to make you feel as good as you have since you were a child. So my subject today is dear to my heart. Uh, I've been reading Walker Percy more or less continuously since college, regularly cycling through the novels on an ongoing basis. He's been a constant companion. As such, I'm a little nervous to be speaking about him. Uh, he's not a secret, and some of you will have read him already, uh, but he's probably had more influence on me than any other modern writer, maybe any writer, period, uh, and I don't really want to mess this up. But first things first, if, uh, before we get to the novels, a few basic facts about this amiable dude in khakis. Walker Percy was born in 1916, died in 1990. He wrote six novels and three nonfiction works. His first novel, The Movie Goer, won the National Book Award in 1961. He was born in Birmingham, Alabama, but was of Mississippian and Georgian, Mississippian and Georgian stock. Orphan in, orphaned in 1931, he moved to Greenville, Mississippi and was raised by a semi-famous uncle, William Alexander Percy, a writer, poet, army captain in World War I and regional political figure. The Percys were a prestigious family in the early 20th century South. Walker's great-grandfather was a Civil War hero for the Confederacy, Colonel William Alexander the Gray Eagle Percy, who founded the Percy Plantation near Vicksburg. Walker's great-uncle, his uncle's father, Leroy Percy, was a Mississippi planter and U.S. Senator. Leroy and his son, famously worked to save Greenville during the 1927 Great Mississippi Flood. They were opponents of segregation and they fought publicly against the Ku Klux Klan. The whole Percy family was seen as Southern nobility in Mississippi, but also as progressives 
with regard to African Americans, a position which often got them into trouble. Walker's direct line was linked to this Percy mythos, but it fought different battles. Manic depression gripped his side of the family. Ultimately, his grandfather, his parents, uh, and both his parents all died young and in the grip of depression. And as a result, the themes of depression, emptiness, and loss recur throughout Percy's novels. However, being raised, a devoted, being raised by a devoted bachelor uncle with a love for the arts and music and who could claim a different part of the family history seems to have affected Walker deeply and helped him to survive these tragedies. Writing about such, such subjects, too, seems to have been cathartic, if obviously difficult. He also found help in psychotherapy and returned to it again and again in his novels. Above all, in his adult life after marriage, Walker developed a deep Christian faith and became a member of the Catholic Church in 1947 at the age of 31. In interviews, he was often irreverent and frank about the church, but his faith remained fundamental to his adult life. A central theme that runs through Percy's novels is dislocation with regard to oneself, estrangement, anxiety, helplessness. His thoughts on this theme expressed in fiction and nonfiction are complex, and there's no way for me to adequately uh, summarize them here. People write dissertations and books on Percy, and I don't consider myself to be an expert. But because his novels have always gripped me and to some degree have become a lens through which I, I view the modern world, I'd like to offer some of the ideas in his books uh, to you and read a few passages that back these ideas up. I'll concentrate today on The Moviegoer, Percy's uh, most famous novel and first, as well as on The Last Gentleman and the Second Coming. Uh, Last Gentleman and the Second Coming are available on the book table. Percy is mainly known as a storyteller, so trying to systematize his thought into philosophical or psychological principles is foolish. But there are ideas that recur multiple times, even with similar, similar phraseology, and these can perhaps anchor us in how he approached the world. I will also run the risk of interpreting his ideas in a Christian manner, uh, though they are almost never expressed as such in his books. The motif above all motifs in Percy's novels is that all people are unwell and for the most part don't realize it. This arises from the dislocation of the self, that is, that we are unwell and unhappy and do not know how to get to a place where we are, uh, are not unwell and unhappy. We are estranged in our very core. At the risk of overinterpreting, I'll go ahead and venture that at a basic level, I think this corresponds with the Christian idea of original sin. Dislocation from self is a result of dislocation from God. Percy, however, describes it in modern terminology, borrowed more or less directly from European existentialism. Kierkegaard, who we heard about this morning, Dostoevsky, Camus, Sartre, and the like. Characters in his books approach this dislocation in different ways, as we will see, but to jump to the conclusion, Percy's only surefire remedy for dislocation, dislocation he calls the malaise in the moviegoer, is coming into personal affliction of some kind. The main character of The Last Gentleman and The Second Coming, Will Ferret, says the following in uh, The Last Gentleman, and on your handouts I put these quotes, but I'm going to read them as well, so you don't have to, to squint if you don't want to. Um, we are well when we are afflicted, and afflicted when we are well. In the moviegoer, the main female protagonist, Kate Kutcher, who suffers from severe anxiety, says the following, quote, I am always at my best with doctors. 
They are charmed with me. I feel fine when I'm sick. It's only when I'm well that... Have you noticed that only in time of illness or disaster or death are people real? This paradox is ultimately theological, I think, as we'll see. Again and again, Percy underlines how things are often the opposite what, as what they, from what they seem, especially in relation to what a normal and happy life is supposed to look like. Percy said in an interview once, men can be well off, judging by their own criteria and with all their needs satisfied, but as time goes on, life is almost unbearable. This idea conjuring his own family history recurs throughout all the books. Only by being jolted out of a societal malaise through hardship, sickness, loss, disaster, etc., do you catch a glimpse of yourself as you are. Ideally, this awakening mitigates the dislocation and offers some clarity, hope, and realness, or at least opens the quest for such things. In addition to the trauma of losing his parents, uh, Walker himself had a near-death experience, which seems to have had something of a, the same effect on him. He attended UNC and then went to Columbia Medical School in New York City. While at Columbia, he contracted tuberculosis and spent uh, years recovering in a sanitarium in upstate New York. After this experience, he got married, had kids, and settled down in Covington, Louisiana, uh, across Lake uh, Pontchartrain from New Orleans. But the experience of serious illness had a permanent effect on him. The main character in the moviegoer, Jack Binks Bowling, had a similar experience when he was almost killed in the Korean War. Quote, only once in my life was the grip of everydayness broken when I lay bleeding in a ditch. An important scene related to this idea occurs towards the beginning of the second coming and is one of the most dramatic in all of his novels. The main character, Will Barrett, is in his old age now, suffering from depression, forgetting things, and going into fugue state. One day, suddenly, while on the golf course, he is stopped in his tracks by a memory from his youth. Quote, only one event had ever happened to him in his life. Everything else that had happened afterwards was a non-event. The event happened on a hunting trip with his father when he was 12. The father, a successful, successful civic leader and lawyer in a small Mississippi town, suffered from depression, despite all his success. In the middle of the quail hunt, the father, across the field from his son, pretends to miss a quail and instead shoots the son intentionally. The shot does not kill him and perhaps was intended only to maim, but it jolts the boy into real existence and shakes him from the every, every day. So this is the quote. The boy saw the muzzle burst and flames spurting from the gun like a picture of a Civil War soldier shooting and even had time to wonder why he had never seen it before. Before he heard the whistling and banging in his ear, and found himself down in the leaves without knowing how he got there, and even then could still hear the sound of the number eight shot rattling away through the milky swamp and was already scrambling to get up from the, the embarrassment of it, for that was no place to be. But when he tried to stand, the keening in his ear spun him down again. All that before he even felt the hot wetness on the side of his face, which was not pressed into the leaves, and touched it and saw the blood. It was as if someone had taken hold of him and flung him down. He heard the gaclick and gaclack of the greeners, the shotguns, breach, opening and closing. Then he heard the shot. He waited, the banging and keening in his head stopped. He did not feel cold. His face did not hurt. Using the gun as a prop, he was able to get to his knees. He called out. 
It had been important to get up before calling. Nobody, not him, not anybody, was going to catch me down here on the ground. When there was no answer, he waited again, aware only of his, of his own breathing and that he was blinking and gazing at nothing in particular. Then, without knowing how he knew, he knew that he was free to act in his own good time. How did he know such a thing? Taking a deep breath, he stood up and exhaled it through his mouth, shoo, as a laborer might do, and wiping blood from his lip with two fingers, he slung it off as a laborer might sling snot. Twelve years old, he grew up in ten minutes. While this is a horrific scene uh, in some ways, uh, the main point across the novels is, as I said, that there is a numbness in life, a dislocation or estrangement from the self which prevents us from seeing the world clearly. In this scene and elsewhere, serious, often life-threatening events have the effect of realigning our locatedness as selves, freeing us to, for once, see ourselves and enlivening us. The affliction for Percy, especially in near-death experiences, brings clarity of thought and purpose. The shooting haunts the boy, even in old age on the golf course. <clears throat> but he recognized the depression in his father, who saw no way out of it and shot his son, perhaps as a way of giving the boy the near-death experience that would save him from the father's fate. The interpretation that the father was shooting to kill, which is one of the interpretations, is, I think, not borne out by the rest of the novel and other similar situations in the novels, but I'll just leave that to the side. Um, the female protagonist in The Second Coming, same book, Allison, escapes from a mental hospital where she has been undergoing shock therapy. She remembers barely anything from her past. Quote, for the first time in her life, she felt that it, her life, was beginning. But maybe that was because she could not remember much about her old life. The opening epigraph of The Last Gentleman is a quote from the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, the father of existentialism, quote, and a Christian thinker as well. Quote, if a man cannot forget, he will not amount, amount to much. The idea here is that a person can get lost in the dislocatedness. Percy is not advocating escape for its own sake. He sees escape as necessary. It takes a clean break with the past in order to move forward. For Percy's characters, this often comes in the form of a near-death experience or amnesia. From a theological point of view, one might point to the experience of a true conversion, something that changes all associations and relationships in the direction of a new thing. Only by losing your life will you save it. More on this in a moment. So given the theme of this conference, uh, I think it's worth pointing out that Percy's characters respond to the dislocation of self in different ways. In the moviegoer, there are multiple characters who seem oblivious to their dislocatedness. They are fundamentally distracted. In the moviegoer, the main character, Binks Bowling, is a stockbroker who lives in a quiet suburb of New Orleans. His father is dead, but his father's family is elite and wealthy. His mother is lower class and lives out in the bayou with her new husband and children. Binks is estranged from both sides to some degree. But he still pays social calls on his aunt and endures her berating him for not living up to his father's inflated memory. His father had died from a, a sickness uh, early in his life. His aunt's husband is Uncle Jules. Quote, Uncle Jules is the only man I know whose victory in the world is total and unqualified. He has made a great deal of money. He has a great many friends. 
He was Rex of Mardi Gras. He gives freely of himself and his money. He is an exemplary Catholic, but it is hard to know why he takes the trouble. For the world he lives in, the city of man, is so pleasant that the city of God must hold little in store for him. Biggs himself at times seeks out this kind of carefree life, though is often brought back to reality by his own inner fears, and especially what he calls the search. He's on to it. He's on to the noise. In the moments of feeling content with his successful life as a stockbroker, he claims things like the following. Quote, as long as I'm getting rich, I feel that all is well. It is my Presbyterian blood. And quote, money is a good counterpoise to beauty. Beauty, the quest for beauty alone, is boredom. Ten years ago, I pursued beauty and gave no thought to money. I listened to the lovely tunes of Mahler and felt a sickness in my very soul. Now I pursue money and on the whole feel better. What he means by beauty here is a life-seeking transcendence. Like his father, who went on a wanderjahr tour of Europe looking for beauty and ultimately failed in his pursuit though in his aunt's eyes died a martyr's death, as I said, having succumbed to a disease at a young age. Binks's aunt is disappointed in, in Binks for not following in his father's footsteps and seeking transcendence. But seeking transcendence, some kind of supernatural experience that triumphs over the mundane, <clears throat> is for many of Percy's characters a failed endeavor. He likens it to his own family's attempt to hold to the noble ideals and elite Southern legacy of the Percy line which ultimately was too great a burden for them to bear. Expectations of success and happiness get in the way of overcoming the dislocation of oneself and often make it much worse. He writes in The Last Gentleman, quote, Southerners have trouble ruling out the possible. What happens to a man to whom all things seem possible and every course of action open? Nothing, of course, except war. If a man lives in the sphere of the possible and waits for something to happen, what he is waiting for is war, or the end of the world. That is why Southerners like to fight and make good soldiers. In the war, in war, the possible becomes actual through do no doing of one's own. Percy uses the words transcendence and imminence throughout the novels to talk about two general ways of dealing with the dislocated self. Transcendence is trying to achieve some kind of ecstatic experience. The two most common in Percy's novels are sex and religion. He likens these two things uh, to one another in the way that they both try to reach out. In the act of sex and in, at the mountaintop of peak experience of religion, one loses oneself and momentarily forgets the natural state of being human, being dislocated. This is a kind of distraction, but it is momentary. The real distraction is trying to get it back again and again, becoming lost in the search for transcendence. Usually the characters choose one or the other of sex or religion if they're seeking transcendence. Like the brother and sister in The Last Gentleman, the disaffected sex addict Sutter and the self-made nun Val. Both of them only care about their dying younger brother, Jamie, to the extent that they can prove to him the validity of their own search for transcendence, thus it is self-justifying. Eminence for Percy is being able to get along happily in the world. The search for transcendence is ultimately a quest to establish eminence, finding a way to live life day to day without difficulty. How do I get back in the world where I feel comfortable? 
Will Barrett in The Last Gentleman is described like this, quote, but now he had developed an even more alarming symptom. He began to get things backwards. He felt bad when other people felt good and, and good when they felt bad. It was not the prospect of the last day which depressed him, but rather the prospect of living through an ordinary Wednesday morning. Some characters, as just as noted, don't uh, notice the problem and get along just fine. Uncle Jules, for example. But many do notice it, or at least have a sense something is not quite right, and they seek out different ways to deal with it. In the moviegoer, Binks, who usually seeks out the company of a pretty girl when he starts getting existentially antsy, comes to a point of frustration with the world, his aunt, and their collective attempts at solving the problem and solving him. Quote, Today is my 30th birthday, and I sit on the ocean wave in the schoolyard and wait for Kate and think of nothing. Now in the 31st year of my dark pilgrimage on this earth, and knowing less than I ever knew before, having learned only to recognize Merv than I see it, having inherited no more from my father than a good nose for Merv, and every species of ship that flies, my only talent, smelling Merv from every quarter, living in fact in the very century of Merv, the great shithouse of scientific humanism where needs are satisfied, everyone becomes an anyone, a warm and creative person, and prospers like a dung beetle, a warm, uh, excuse me, and 100% of people are humanists and 98% believe in God, and men are dead, dead, dead. And the malaise is settled like a fallout, and what people really fear is not that the bomb will fall, but that the bomb will not fall. On this, my 30th birthday, I know nothing, and there is nothing to do but fall prey to desire. Nothing remains but desire. Desire comes howling down the Elysian fields in, in New Orleans like a mistral. My search has been abandoned. It is no match for my aunt, her ripeness, and her despair. Her despairing of me and her despairing of herself. Whenever I take leave of my aunt after one of her serious talks, I have to find a girl. Again and again in Percy's novels, the main characters who are on to the problem of their dislocated self and who have had some kind of near-death experience or an extreme experience of forgetting are often frustrated in their understanding of what has happened to them. They see the people around them living an imminent life without noticing dislocation or trying to ignore it and they are flummoxed. Often they will turn to sex or to religious experience, more often just to people offering these things, the transcendence ones, because they seem to be on to something to have answers. But the transcendent ones invariably do not. They do nevertheless provide some clues. <clears throat> in the end, almost all the characters in these novels are lost, some not knowing they are, distracted from the search by easy living, success, or grand ideas, and others who know they are lost and who try to use extreme desire, physical or religious, to locate themselves. The transcendent ones are usually the most pitiable and disgusting characters, even more than the ones lost in imminence. Now where does this all leave us um, with, God in, in, with God in Walker Percy? As I said, he was a staunch Catholic from the age of 31 until his death. It seems to have offered him not just comfort after a difficult childhood, but also with something he firmly believed in. Yet in his books, the religious characters by and large are not appealing. They are either hypocritical or obsessed with themselves and impose their will on others. 
Equally, the societal Christianity of the South, which he mentions above, is merely part of the natural scenery and is just furniture for most of the characters. Yet for Binks and the moviegoer, apathy itself, his own apathy in particular, is the sign of something greater. Quote, my belief was invincible from the beginning. I could never make head or tail of God. The proofs of God's existence may have been true for all I know, but it didn't make the slightest difference. If God himself had appeared to me, it would have changed nothing. In fact, I only have to hear the word God and a curtain comes down on my head. My father's family think that the world makes sense without God and that anyone but an idiot knows what the good life is and anyone but a scoundrel can lead it. I don't know what either of them are talking about. Really, I can't make head or tail of it. The best I can do is lie rigid as a stick under the cot, locked in the death, death grip of, with everyday, everydayness, sworn not to move a muscle until I advance another inch in my search. The swamp ex exhales beneath me, and across the bayou, a night bittern pumps away like a diesel. At last, the iron grip relaxes, and I pull my pants off the chair, fish out a notebook, and scribble in the dark. Remember tomorrow, starting point for search. It, is, it no longer avails to start with creatures and prove God, yet it is impossible to rule God out. The only possible starting point, the strange fact of one's own invincible apathy, that if the proofs were proved and God presented himself, nothing would be changed. Here is the strangest fact of all. Abraham saw signs of God and believed. Now the only sign is that all the signs in the world make no difference. Is this God's ironic revenge? But I am on to him. Binks and the moviegoer is on a search, like he said. It's not a search for God exactly, but it's a search for why people are miserable. Why he is miserable and can't seem to get along with the people he's supposed to get along with. Percy links the mis this misery to the fact that we can't escape ourselves. This location of the self is in many ways being consumed by ourselves. In the end, something like a near-death experience, amnesia, or even Armageddon needs to happen, at least for his character, in order for people to look afresh at life and to re relo relocate their self and put it in its place. Percy never waxes theological, but he puts a Christian spin on his characters. Oh, excuse me, let me start that again. Percy never waxes theological, he never puts a Christian spin on his characters. But, in our context here, I would venture to say he has put a, his finger on the effects of sin and the fall. Everything is out of order. The self is a tyrant. You either feed the beast and are consumed by eminence, consumed by social problems, by politics, by money, advancement, success, cultural Christianity, or whatever, or you chase after the transcendent through mountaintop momentary experiences like sex or religion. Percy would never say, of course, that the Christian religion is bad in its basic doctrines. He assented to these. But the functionalizing of religion into something that gives you a platform for doing good works or solving problems is a failure to him. This, to me, is a theology of law. Likewise, the search for beauty or the good is some kind of abstract ideal that can define your life and take you out of the everyday malaise is a false hope. This is a theology of glory. Neither eminence nor transcendence in the hands of a dislocated, a dislocated human being is worth much. So ultimately, according to Percy, we need the nuclear war we started with. We need a kind of Armageddon to shake us free from the malaise. 
Being jolted out of the dislocation of the self is the only way to find yourself again. Of course, in the church, we would call this grace, or rather, the inbreaking of the word of God into a heart that has lost its place. Whether we're crushed, numb, self-satisfied, angry, hurt, depressed, lonely, unconfident or overconfident, addicted or just plain stuck in the mud, we need, God, need God's grace to hit us like a nuclear missile and level everything in sight. Everything means, on one hand, all the distractions we use to get by and say that life's okay. It also means our grandest and most eloquent visions, our inflated sense of selves and purpose and self-worth. That's all hogwash. Our worth is not self-worth. We're worth something because God demonstrated how much worth we, we have to him in sending Jesus to be crucified and raised from the dead for us. The thing I love most about Walter Percy is his ability to show how much we need this inbreaking of grace, how everybody needs it. It's a daily phenomenon. Percy can be a downer sometimes, um, but he's not telling us we're all horrible. He shows quite clearly that it's the, that it's the situation that's horrible, not individuals per se. Now we're part of the problem, sure, but the problem has us all in a bind. What I think he's getting at above is that ideally we too can be clued in to the need for a search and the need for something outside of us. And ultimately maybe clued in is all that's needed for God to make, his own, make us his own and bring us to himself, even if that takes a few nuclear bombs. Thanks. So, I will not take any questions at this time. Uh, I'm happy to take questions. Uh, I'm not sure I can explain the plots of every book, but I'll, I'll do my best to situate them. Any thoughts? At a basic level, I think it's the fact that it's not everyday life, right? And, and there are many examples of this mini nuclear war type thing in the movie Goer. Um, so he uh, seeks often, I mean, the reason it's called the movie Goer is because he goes and sees movies in random places in, the, in New Orleans. He will just find a theater and just go and see a movie and that takes him out of the malaise. It's a sort of therapeutic thing that he does. Um, and it's largely successful, though it lasts for only a short period of time and then he has to do it again. And, um, and then he has a great story about, he loves cars, this, this one character, he loves cars. But there's certain cars that increase the malaise and certain cars that don't. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, one time, I forget which car it was, but he gets a, like a, a Ford or something and it's brand new, shiny, it's great. And he takes one of his girls, he always has like a girl on his arm because uh, that sort of shakes him out too. Um, and he takes him down to the, the coast, down to the ocean, the Gulf. And he said, the malaise is, was as strong as ever in this car. And, you know, <coughs> we barely talked to each other and I, I couldn't wait to take her home. And, uh, I was just completely depressed the whole time. But then he gets this old MG that barely holds together, 
and he, he, he said, yeah, well, this is pretty good, and then, and then he has a car wreck, and, he's, and then the whole day blows up, and it's fantastic, and he, they have the best time, and they end up kissing and <laughs> loving on each other on the beach, and, uh, and, uh, and it was because of the car wreck, right? So there are these many apocalypses that happen for him, uh, and wakes, jolts him and wakes him up and says, hey, that's different. So the, the Armageddon motif is like, that's the, the big one. But it, I think at a base level, it's just changing the everyday routine. Right? Things get, things lose their meaning and their value by repeated um, association, familiarness, familiarity. Yeah, so all of, all of these things, the, the, um, so the, go the goal is like to align transcendence and imminence, I think. Ultimately, I think that's what he would, like, he calls it the transcendent imminence self, you know. Again, he's not writing philosophy. These are words in the mouths of characters, so you can't pin him with certain phraseology, but that's a, a phrase that's used. And I think the idea is to be able to be aligned vertically to beauty or to God or whatever in a way that aligns perfectly with uh, life, with everyday life, with interactions with people, with everything. And that, he says, there's no, there, it doesn't exist, right, basically. And people either try, uh, refuse to try the imminent route or they try only the imminent route. And so, um, yeah, I, I could go further into his characters there, but, um, and, uh, sorry, what was the second part? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so why not, why not instigate the suffering intentionally? Well, it, it's obviously not permanent because it's, um, you know, Will Barrett in the second coming, who is on the golf course in his old age, depressed, and comes into this memory of what happened to him. You know, the only event that ever meant anything to him. Um, uh, but it, the event itself, you know, you, it's, you can't put this stuff down on a butterfly album and having a little struggle there to, to give you like a philosophical principle. But the idea is that um, if you read The Last Gentleman and The Second Coming together, in The Last Gentleman, The Last Gentleman, the main character, doesn't really suffer from the malaise. He's got things wrong. So when people are happy, he's unhappy. When people are unhappy, he's happy. He's just, it's kind of reversed. So there has been some effect, and that reversal is what clues him in to the search. So Percy's very fond of basically saying, you know, let those who have ears to hear, hear, right? So he's in his interviews and stuff, he's like, okay, not everybody's gonna get this. Not everybody's gonna feel it. But if you feel it, you feel it, and you get it. And, um, and 
So he, there's no judgment on people who don't give, but you know, that character in particular in his young years is taken to be searched. And I think there is a sense in the second coming that that's because of this event that he's clued in. And he often, when things get weird, his ear buzzes, right? And because that's where he was shot, sort of in the wow. side of his head. Um, so, uh, but in the second coming, he's still depressed. And, you know, there's this funny scene at the beginning where he's standing on a golf course and falls into a sand trap and just lays there and doesn't know why he's fallen into a sand trap. So, anyway, um, I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but why, I mean, the one thing before I shut up, uh, just the, the shooting of the son, I think, does it, there's different ways of reading that, that section in that novel, uh, in the second coming. There's, uh, there's another shell in the shotgun that hasn't been pulled, and that was like, the idea was maybe that it was intended to really kill the son, and he, he couldn't do it. That's one, I think, interpretation of that. He could just maim him. Um, but you see other, because of the connection with other near-death experiences that happens in every novel, somebody has a near-death experience, either in the past or the present. Uh, because of that, I think you do see that there's, um, uh, there's a connection made between this scene and, and those ideas and that theme. Um, so that I think he's just shooting to maim, effectively. I thought about calling this talk Shoot to Maim, but I thought that might be a little <laughs> off-putting. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, that's, that's it. Yes, Father Yumi. Thank you so much. I think you're absolutely right. It's interesting your point about being prodded because there are a lot of characters in these novels that are religious figures and the, the central character or the central characters, either Allison or Will or Binks, they'll go after one of these people and say, give me the answer. You know, give me, you know, tell me how I can solve my problem. Right. And some, often they're unwilling to tell or they just give them an idea or a, a sort of program, and the program, of course, doesn't work or whatever, but there are people who they identify as, you know, this person's going to give me that chance anyway. Maybe I should just go quit my job and uh, <laughs> 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 Yeah.
See what happens. <laughs> no, please don't do that. Our kids would all be in the worst place. Um, but you know, one point that could be made on that, uh, with that thought, is that all of the experiences, these apocalyptic experiences that happen in Percy that shake people, that change people, that wake them up, that make them alive, they are all usually, they're, they're not created by the character. They're from the outside. And that's why I likened it to this idea of the inbreaking of the word of God into our malaise, right? our everydayness. That grace doesn't happen because we, we sort of make it happen. Right? It happens to us, you know, often at a time when we're not expecting it, even if we need it, sometimes when we totally need it. Uh, but it's it ultimately it's not there's no trigger you know that we can. Like you were saying, it should be kept from us. Yeah. yeah. That 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 life is going to be disruptive. Yeah. What then? Can you pay attention to see what then is there to the world then to what can Yeah, so, I mean, th there's the one, one thing about these novels is they're not preachy. I may have gotten up here and tried to turn it a little bit into a, into a gospel-focused you know, thing, but like I said, none of his ideas are explicitly in Christian terms. They're all based around existentialism. Kierkegaard is an epigraph in his second novel. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's deeply committed to that, and he thinks that the way that French existentialists in particular are able to weave philosophy into fiction uh, is very effective. That people absorb these things better and see them better through telling stories. Um, and I think that's something the ancient Greeks got very well in tragedy, for example. Um, you know, it's something I think you get in the Gospels uh, to some degree, though those are written in a kind of sui generis genre. But still, you do get it in, you do get this in French existentialism a lot. So it's not preachy. And he's not telling you there is a program to go and have this. And he's certainly not telling you to go and try to do this yourself um, because you'll fail. But when these things break in and affect you, um, they do tend to enliven you. And there can be, you know, in a Christian sense, it can be a conversion experience to be enlivened by grace and to seek that out. You don't. Uh, you know, and this is it's more of a, a subject for a theologian, but you don't escape the malaise even after grace has broken in, right? You haven't been glorified yet or however you want to put that. Uh, you don't escape it. The malaise is still there. But kind of like Will Barrett and The Last Gentleman, you're clued in. You're listening. Your ear's buzzing because that's where you were shot in the head, right? By your, your father. <laughs> you know, crazy stories. But that's you know, your ear starts buzzing, um, and you know the malaise is not all there is, right? You, you, you've had this apocalyptic event in your life, and you can, you can sort of channel that, as it were, uh, into a, a way to live in the everydayness. So hoping and waiting for the fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah, I've talked way too much. Yes, sir. Well, I, I'm trying to define it according to the way that he talks about beauty. Um, can we return to that quotation? Do you mind if we, if we do that? Um, 
want to make sure I get that right. Um, where is it? Yeah, I don't have your page here. Hey, can I borrow this? Number 11? Thank you. Um, yeah, so he says, this is uh, in the moviegoer, King Spalling. Money is a good counterpoise to beauty. Beauty, the quest of beauty alone, is whoredom. Ten years ago, I pursued beauty and gave no thought to money. I listened to the lovely tunes of Mahler and felt a sickness in my very soul. Now I pursue money, and on the whole, I feel better. Um, so the idea there is this, con this contrast comes up again and again, this contrast between eminence and transcendence. So with the search for pure beauty, you're trying to elevate yourself and have these mountaintop experiences with beauty, whether it's through Mahler or you know, fine wine or whatever it is for you, like you're trying to elevate yourself transcendently. Um, but he's chosen in certain times, I mean, Binks is pushed out of this often just through his search, but he finds that working and being successful, his Presbyterian roots, as he calls them, uh, as a stockbroker uh, is less disturbing to him than trying to find transcendence and it lasting for a moment and then crashing back to the ground of everydayness. Accepting the everydayness, trying to be like Uncle Gould, who is a, a man at home in the world, is, is easier living uh, than trying to push through beauty. And you could, of course, push this a little bit and say, well, maybe that's because beauty is actually getting closer to what this is all about. Maybe, that's just not how he frames it. These are two axes and you know, neither one is fully successful. Coffee? Is that the answer? Okay, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it.